You are listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno, and I want to welcome you to the Macro Trading Floor. This is the most actionable macro podcast out there. Hi, guys. Hope you're all doing well. Another very exciting week. I guess in 2022, there have been very few quiet weeks, Andreas. Um, <laughs> let's start from the most parabolic chart in macro. Natural gas didn't, wasn't a macro variable up until a year, year and a half ago, if you ask me, or a very significant one, but now it is. The chart is parabolic, but now it's parabolic on the way down. So yeah. uh, I know somebody who warned us that the world isn't going to fall apart in Europe, or at least that the consensus was getting a bit overly excited about dark ages in Germany uh, in winter, Andreas. Do you want to give us an update? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, th I think it's fair to assume that a bunch of assholes started in, <laughs> in involving themselves in the electricity market uh, and maybe even, even also in the natural gas market because, I mean, uh, things basically ran out of control. Um, and now it actually seems as if this verbal intervention from the European Commission works so far. Um, so let's see. I mean, it's it's probably too too early to just call it a done deal. But uh, I mean, it seems as if at least the worst part is behind us. And one of the reasons um, for, for this is actually that, I mean, in the base case scenario, Europe will not run out of energy this winter. I had a very deep look at the numbers and I posted it on my Substack Steno Signals. Um, and I mean, if we just take the base case of a continued 20 to 30 percent uh, flow from from Russia in, in terms of natural gas um, out, out of the usual um, flow of 100% and a winter um, that is fairly neutral when it comes to temperatures. Then on my calculations, uh, Germany will have more than 100 uh, terawatt hours worth of natural gas at storage 1st of April next year. No issues. <clears throat> of course, there's still sort of a worst case scenario to pencil in. Let's assume that Putin sends zero terawatt hours worth of natural gas from now on and until April next year. Then we could be in for a tricky winter, um, but it depends on whether the winter is mild or not. Uh, so in a harsh winter scenario, um, we will probably get to um, a scenario where the Germans will run out of natural gas. Uh, in a more neutral scenario with a mild winter or even like an average winter, they will just barely make it. Um, so we are basically in the hands of good old mother nature. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But I mean, the base case is still that they, they will have plenty of energy. So, I mean, of course, of course you should price in the probability of, of, of this worst case scenario, but I mean, I'm, I'm not a weather forecaster. Um, maybe I would be better at forecasting the weather than the financial markets, who knows? But I mean, the base case is still that they have plenty of energy. Yeah. And I think the forward, your point last week was that the forward electricity market went to price in a probabilistic outcome, which was a bit too much skewed towards uh, the worst case scenario. And as you said, it's not really a well-functioning market right now. So probably didn't really reflect market expectations, but just, uh, yeah price action, which was uncorrelated to uh, market implied probabilities, let's say. But now the interesting thing, Andreas, is that in the meantime, inflation in Europe has surprised on the upside. And one second, because many people tell me, Alf, I mean, okay, it's all energy supply bottlenecks. And this is indeed correct so far. So if you make an analysis of uh, where 
European inflation is coming from over the last year? What are the contributors from the demand side, the energy side, the supply side? Estimates are roughly only 20% of European inflation is demand-driven. All the rest is energy and supply bottlenecks, Andrea. So people are asking, why would the ECB hike into this environment? And the problem is that once inflation gets out of control and inflation expectations also start to rise a bit outside the ECB mandate, and on top of it, right now, we have core services inflation in Europe, which has, which has surprised to the upside as well in the last prints. It's obvious that the risk reward for the ECB of doing nothing here or not showing commitment is pretty bad. So they will need to intervene. And despite the drop in electricity prices, which would um, you know, signal a, a less pressure on CPI from that front, European yields are now reflecting terminal rates in the Eurozone at 2%. And interestingly, the European swap curve has inverted for the first time since 2008. It seems a bit like the US three to four months ago. Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, I mean, I've also had a look at the electricity uh, contribution to um, the consumer basket in Europe. Uh, and I mean, even with the observed prices now, so basically spot prices from today and a few weeks back, we should expect double digit inflation in Germany. We should expect inflation above 15% in France, Spain, Italy. Uh, Spain is probably the best case here, just to, 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 to be, be certain about that. But I mean, Q4 inflation will look absolutely terrible in Europe because there is a time lag between the spot price of electricity and the time that it is actually reported in the consumer price index since um, it is, of course, the time when the households actually pay the bill that you reported in the consumer price index. So there's a time lag. So, I mean, the pressure will still be there on the ECB during the fourth quarter. Um, uh, I, I don't even dare saying it, but of course they'll hike 75 basis points. I mean, they need to, because by the end of the day, Alf, if you were running a restaurant and, and you um, already know that you have an, an electricity bill upcoming uh, that is worth 10 times the usual bill, you obviously need to to increase the price of cappuccinos. I mean, I guess it's that simple, right, by the end of the day. So the spillovers from the electricity space to service costs, et cetera, is, is now pretty clear. Yeah, and core services. I think the momentum of core services in, the U, in, the, in Europe is now the highest over the last 25 years. So it's not only energy anymore because it is going to be somehow passed over to consumers for to the extent possible and real wages in in europe are negative 10 percent year on year across the board so it and as andrea says it isn't going to look any any better so we are not making a, a positive case for europe over q4 but we just are debating whether the extent of the forward electricity prices was actually uh, correct or too much parabolic last week now, the interesting thing, Andreas, is that as bond markets in Europe have sort of reacted to a more aggressive uh, ECB, pricing in a more aggressive uh, reaction function, you would expect the euro to start performing against the dollar or against other currencies in general, right? On the other hand, we just see again the euro below parity. So I got to ask you this question. What do you make of um, the effects euro against the dollar? Why is the euro not trailing? I simply think it is due to the <clears throat> risk of a systemic crisis in Europe as a consequence of these electricity prices. If we look at the size of this issue, uh, measured by the percent of GDP, I would argue that we are in double-digit territory. So the bill, no matter whether the public sector decides to pay it or whether they will actually pass it on to households and corporates, I doubt it. But by the end of the day, if the public sector pays this bill, it will be worth more than 10% of GDP in many countries in the Euro, Eurozone, right? Uh, so ultimately, that's a kind of a 
build that uh, looks similar to the bailouts that we saw uh, of big banks, for example, during 2008, 2009. Um, it is that kind of severity we're talking about. Uh, and you, you essentially don't have that systemic crisis risk in the US to any uh, extent similar to Europe. So I think that's the very simple reason why the euro is basically just sold, no matter what the ECB does. Yeah, and uh, obviously the other thing is that some of the system systemic risk is then compounded by Italian elections. If you look at the CDS, mm -hmm. the old contract and the new contract, uh, you can look at the spread between the two and one protects against re-denomination, the, the other doesn't. Uh, if you look at the spread between the two CDS, this is actually 80% out there as it was priced in 2018, where the new government came out to be extremely loudly public against Europe. I don't think the new government will be so loud against Europe, but it's not going to be European friendly on top of it. So obviously, as you say, Europe has some structural issues and whoever pays, foots the electricity bill, public sector, private sector is basically either a dump in terms of purchasing power, in terms of trade in general of the euro, or new euros need to be printed from the fiscal authorities to, to make up for the difference. Let me ask you a question in relation to this Italian election. Um, I had a few questions on it on Twitter, uh, because I stated that Italy is probably the country mostly reliant on natural right. gas in terms of electricity production, right? So it's about 50% of all the electricity production in Italy being based on natural gas. So let's assume that the Germans will not re-export natural gas because of scarcity. Uh, other countries will do the same in Europe, maybe. What will Italy do and what will the new government do? So I asked the question, like the rhetorical question, will Miloni, I think that's her name, will she fly to Moscow as one of the first things that she does in office? I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, I would say that if it's not the first, it's then the second thing she would do, Andreas. I mean, uh, the <laughs> yeah. Meloni government would be backed by Berlusconi and Salvini, uh, which are mm -hmm. very well known to be very uh, open to Russia in general. I mean, Berlusconi is not the news and Salvini has been many times in Russia to discuss um, strategy and geopolitics with uh, with Putin, uh, Meloni uh, will probably have to align to that stance because she doesn't have a government unless Berlusconi and Salvini back her up. So if it's not the first thing, then it's the second, Andreas. I tend to agree. Interesting times. Um, so let's see what happens in, in, in Italy over time. I think it's slowly but surely time to introduce the guest of the week, Alfonso. Um, a legend, basically. Um, he's been running big money uh, in various hedge funds and... Um, now he's the founder of his own. Let's welcome in. It is now my pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. Um, an old friend of mine, uh, a guy I've known for years, and a uh, very successful hedge fund manager, Ben Melkman, the founder of uh, Light Sky Macro. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Andreas. Uh, as you said, a dear old friend and a new friend, Elf. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Look forward to the discussion today. Ben, I've heard of you many, many times. It's a pleasure to have you here on the show on the macro trading floor. Let's kick start with your secular macro view, because I know you see some changes under the, the hood, actually, that could affect the overall macro landscape. So why don't you walk us a little bit through your big picture macro thesis first? You know, I think it's important to, you know, without spending too much time on it, to kind of look at, you know, both the last 40 years and, and, and as well the last, you know, 13, you know, 13 odd years, um, and really look at where we are now as the beginning of the end 
of uh, of those timescales or or um, you know those macro environments and the beginning of a new one. So what exactly do I mean of that? So you know, starting in the early '80s uh, with Volcker, etc., we started uh, a new inflation targeting central banking regime following the inflation of, of the 70s and, and early 80s. Uh, and really since then, we've been on a, a, a secular disinflation path, uh, disinflation, lowflation path. Um, some of that was a result of the central banking changes, lessons they'd learned, you know, in the 10 years since Bretton Woods, uh, obviously, which Volcker um, uh, clearly embodied. Um, uh, as well as many other factors, you know, outside of the monetary sphere. Um, obviously, the most notable of that um, was the falling of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, um, and really the extreme globalization that that set off and the massive addition to the global labor supply that we saw. Um, obviously, China uh, being, um, you know, the, uh, you know the, the, the main part of that, but, but clearly also all throughout, you know, the other side of the Iron Curtain, Eastern Europe. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw, therefore, um, you know, if you kind of go back to your Economics 101 textbook, that globalization allowed hyper-specialization, look at the, you know, within Europe, the kind of automobile supply chain and what we have, not only from Germany, but really, you know, across Czech Republic, Hungary, uh, Poland, etc., cetera. Uh, and obviously on a global scale, the hyper-specialization that you saw in China, um, where along that Western seaboard, you were able to see, um, you know, massive efficiency gains, uh, you know, from having, from essentially outsourcing, you know, huge parts of the manufacturing process uh, into the lowest cost producer. Um, and because they were all located uh, near each other, also adding, you know, a, a large amount of, of logistics efficiencies. And so as that uh, process accelerated, you know, from, you know, especially through the 90s and the early 2000s and became a bigger and bigger and bigger part of the world economy and embodied more and more and more specialization, um, you know, that just led to constant efficiency gains and uh, constant increases in productivity and therefore, um, you know, was, was a really significant part of the disinflation and the lowflation environment that, that, that we had. Um, if I look at where we are then today, uh, let's say one more thing. And then if we also talk about the period of, let's say, 2009 to 2020, I think it's important to talk about that before we get onto the inflation part. Because when we talk about the stimulus, one of the critiques is always, um, sure, but we had plenty of QE in 09 to 20, and never, you know, we never got inflation, inflation stayed zero. We're able to keep the central bank going during those 11, 12 years. What's different now? I think what embodied the period of time of 09 to 20 um, was uh, economic policy, which said we took on too much debt in 07 and 08. How do we get rid of that debt? We're going to have extremely restrictive fiscal policy on the whole. And that was offset um, by a very easy monetary policy, zero rates, QE, et cetera, which allowed governments to bring down their debt balances. And so, um, you know, and I think that's important because therefore that money printing, if you will, or that liquidity the central banks created had no multiplier 
because it was completely offset by contractor fiscal policy, right? Um, if we actually look at some of the structural issues of inflation, actually coming into COVID, some of the uh, long cycle in uh, um, some of the long cycle cause of structural inflation were already starting to turn. We had essentially already eaten through the global labor supply by the time COVID arrived. China had ceased to have, uh, you know, be a be a country to wage disinflation, um, and so that major part of global disinflation of ever, uh, you know, the demographics of the of the new parts of labor supply. Um, you know, constantly bringing new people from the countryside, et cetera. That part was already over. And starting with Trump, we already had some of the first question marks uh, around globalization of the theme uh, and the beginning of maybe a, a new ideology to say maybe it's not all positive that we have our whole supply chain offshore. Uh, maybe we need to bring some of that back home. The winners and losers. Um, Sorry about that. Um, the uh, the you know clearly the, the the winners and losers by the time we got to Trump, you know the the just before the pre-COVID period, the wealth disparity that this globalization had brought up, as we saw in Brexit, as we saw in Trump, had come to the fore politically, um, and people were questioning, well, is hollowing out your manufacturing base great? It's great for the top one percent or maybe the top five percent, those in high-paying service jobs. But what about the middle of your country, the middle class, lower middle class and lower classes? Um, where are the returns to them, et cetera? And so those political questions are already starting to foment. And then we had COVID, right? And COVID, I think, completely marks the end of that 40-year cycle of secular disinflation inflation, um, for several reasons. And it's not just the stimulus. The stimulus was, let's say, the... Uh, powder keg or the match that struck a fire, but there was plenty of dry leaves already. So the fact that after 13 years of doing QE and not creating inflation, uh, the you know the policymakers said, well, why not now double up instead of having offsetting fiscal policy? Let's add stimulative fiscal policy to stimulated monetary policy. That clearly um, you know was the match that struck the inflation fire that created the demand side. But really, the ground was fertile because of the supply side. Some of the factors I already mentioned, and clearly the politics, um, you know, moved infinitely uh, further that way during COVID, both on the global supply chain issues, um, you know, clearly with what we saw with medical equipment, et cetera, and COVID, populations have now decided that there is a cost to those productivity gains uh, that they don't want to bear anymore. And so there is a, a clear global theme of re-onshoring and therefore you lose some of that specialization and productivity gains uh, that, that, that we gained over the last, you know, 20 plus years, uh, 20, 30 years. Um, that was one issue. Uh, second issue was, you know, COVID further expanded, let's say, the, um, the need to uh, reorientate, let's say, the wealth inequality structure uh, that we saw build up over the last 30, 40 years. And so politics has moved more to a more permanent, let's say, fiscal transfer orientation uh, and a uh, political environment uh, that broadens the returns to economic growth. Um, and then lastly, the last structural change, which will be with us for the next several decades, is the energy transition, um, which 
clearly um, had been brought to the fore in the post-COVID environment, where policymakers monumentally messed up, not necessarily in the end goal, but in the time sequencing. And so it's all uh, great, you know, no political judgment to have a goal of decarbonization, given the fact that we, we, we still need energy for every part of our economic life. Uh, clearly, the time sequencing was messed up where we've completely disincentivized and actually made it very difficult uh, for new carbon investment, whether that be, you know, oil, gas, and obviously uh, things like coal, um, without having the replacement. So we haven't built the new nuclear reactors. In fact, places like Germany have still been turning them <laughs> off. Um, and we clearly don't have, um, you know, the infrastructure across the rest of the renewable space to replace the carbon that's been lost. And so having that uh, inconsistency around the energy transition, um, you know, it will, is clearly leading to elevated energy prices, which will be with us for some time, um, you know, as that's more structural and cyclical. You make a very compelling case for a regime shift in terms of inflation, Ben. Um, it seems as if the lowflation seen over the past couple of decades is a thing of the past by, by now. So let's talk about central banks in the context of higher inflation. Uh, just last week at the Jackson Hole conference, Jay Powell actually mentioned uh, Paul Volcker a couple of times during his, his speech. What do you make of the Federal Reserve reaction function in the context of higher inflation? Clearly, we're in the space now of, of catch-up, uh, and so they're front-loading. And so I think, let's say, the easy part of that is now done, right? You know, we've, we've hiked to where we are, you know, where we, we will we, they will continue hiking to the end of the year. Um, is it 75? Is it 50? It's almost irrelevant, right? Um, I would say two more 50s, but, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, let's see how the data goes on, on Friday in the following week. Um But, you know, where we're taking rates to some concept of neutrality or let's say some concept of north of three, right? Uh, you know, three, three and a half percent. Um, and then it becomes substantially more difficult, almost irrespective of the inflation regime. And the reason that is, is the other thing that's really important about where we are is just the colossal growth of the size of the balance sheet, right? So you've got a Federal Reserve balance sheet of almost $10 trillion, which is almost unheard of. I mean, pre-08, I mean, <laughs> the balance sheet was, you know, in the tens of billions, right? So we've had, you know, almost a hundred times growth of the Fed balance sheet over the last 13 years, and obviously a significant part of that over the last two years. And why is that important is that, A central bank is a bank like any other bank, has the asset side of the balance sheet and the liability side of the balance sheet. And because you're doing QE to deal with a um, zero bound issue, you're buying your bonds at very low levels of interest rates by design, right? And that game was fine from 09 to 20 because you never really had to raise rates substantially above where the return you're earning um, you know, on your asset side of the balance sheet, because the bonds you buy the asset side of your balance sheet and your overnight rate or the policy rate is your liability side of the balance sheet. And so therefore, from 09 to 20, the Federal Reserve always made a profit. They could send money back to Congress and everybody was happy. COVID comes, we massively expand the size of those purchases at extremely low levels of rates. And now the inflation dynamic changes. So you've bought all your bonds at, let's call it one, you know, sub 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 
right? And now you're going to, um, and now you're going to have uh, an overnight rate of let's call it three and a half percent, right? And times ten trillion dollars. Now you're going to be asked needing to ask Congress next year, right? So this year they'll still get away with it. If they stop at three and a half percent, you're going to need about two hundred fifty billion dollars. Let alone some of the people are calling for five or six percent rates. You know, you're going to need five hundred billion dollars a year. And in this political climate, as we started talking about earlier, where it's all about how do we broaden um, the returns to economic growth, asking Congress for $500 billion, taking away from health and education and social security programs to pay banks interest on reserves is going to be a very difficult one to explain especially when the net outcome of that is not only is that directly, but also great, you know, we to continue having equity prices high and continue, um, you know, essentially the, the, you know, continuing the wealth gap that we've seen built up and asking Congress for that money is going to be very, very, very difficult. And so I think people like Jay Powell are well aware of that. And one reason they've been so panic to try and front load as quickly as possible is how do we maximize the effect for a given rate increase? Because if I'm Jay Powell, I'm pretty sure no matter what the inflation dynamic is, I can't take rates to 6%, right? Um, if I want to stay remotely independent uh, and not have the Treasury or the government consume the Fed as it was, uh, previously, you know, before central banks won their independence in the 80s and 90s. And we're already seeing, by the way, in places like the Bank of England uh, or in the UK, in terms of the leadership election there, Liz Truss and part of her policy, and she's almost certainly going to be the next prime minister, part of her platform is dealing with some of these issues, in fact, really resubsuming the Bank of England to a part of the Treasury. Uh, she's already stated that she doesn't want to pay banks interest on reserves and um, without thinking of the consequences that will create. Um, so these are, we're actually seeing a real, this already be real life questioned as we speak. But because of that, you know, they've had to be very, 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 very hawkish in a short amount of period of time because he's trying to see, can I kill inflation by speed of hikes rather than, um, you know, quantity of hikes. You know, what I think is going to be really interesting as we go into 2023 under Andreas and Alf and, uh, you know, into the audience is this phase of where super hawkish central banks, I think, will be done by the end of the year. I think they're going to be quite fortunate in that inflation will be rolling over, right? Um, just by math, right? Basically, effects, et cetera, ease of supply chain issues. But when I say inflation rolling over, we're not going back to where we were pre-COVID. The 9% rates that we're seeing might go down given the uh, fiscal impulse uh, turning down lower, given clearly the hikes and, and balance sheet reduction we'll see by then, um, and given ease of supply chain, maybe we go down to 4%. Um, so in one way, they're going to be fortunate because the rate of change will be on their side to say maybe it's time for a pause. But I think they will end up repeating essentially the same mistakes that they made in the 70s where they end up taking off their foot too early and, you know, almost by necessity um, and therefore not be able to really do what's required to get inflation under their old mandate 
And so I think what we'll see in 23 and 24 is maybe a revisit, should the mandate be higher, uh, other forms of financial repression, or do we just change the calculation of the basket to get it down, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we'll essentially be done in the hikes by what they get accomplished by, you know, the end of this year, mostly early next year. Um, and then uh, the fiscal dominance will assert itself, the concern for central bank independence will assert itself, um, you know, and uh, they will be unable to take rates significantly higher to bring inflation back under their, let's call it, old mandate. So, Ben, I have a follow-up on uh, on this, and I think it's really important to try and understand the Fed reaction function once we get there. So let's assume the forwards that are priced in the market now are realized both on Fed funds and on inflation. So one-year forward Fed funds are like 3.5%, one-year forward inflation is one year, one year forward inflation is like 3% roughly. So let's say we are at a point roughly like you're describing, right? We get there. We get to a point where the Fed has had the rate of change like they wanted it to be. And they have observed empirical real Fed funds rate in positive territory makes them relatively comfortable. Do you think they will though be comfortable with inflation in a new regime at three and a half, three percent rather than the two percent, which remains their explicit target? How do you think they're going to are they going to accept that or are they going to push against it and still try to bring it all the way down to 2%? I, I, I think we've already seen now for the beginning of policymakers and not both in the US and globally begin to question, well, why 2%? Isn't that arbitrary? What's uh, Is 2% inflation necessarily better than 3% inflation? Of course, we're concerned that inflation doesn't escalate and run away, but why Why is 2% the magic number? Um, and, and I think that's the environment we'll be in because I think they will be very conscious, uh, as I said earlier, um, of not getting to an environment that's already open where, um, let's say, governments uh, re-submerge or uh, you know, central banks under them uh, because that's also the environment where inflation would go to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and beyond, right? So, um, and that's where inflation expectations will get out of control, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're almost, you could almost argue, if you wanted to be kind to the mouth, at least on a going forward basis, that being conscious of that is actually fulfilling their mandate, because if they weren't conscious of that, um, you know, could be the difference not of two or three and a half percent inflation, but of three and a half or 13 and a half percent inflation, right? So, um, I, I don't think they will push aggressively. I think they want to make sure the acceleration phase is done and they've shown their metal to not let inflation spiral out of control, not let expectations spiral out of control. But I think if they have rates at a reasonable level and inflation is in the threes, I think they will consider their job well done. If we look at the recent price action in the US dollar, in particular versus the sterling and the euro, it's been basically one-way traffic over the past year or so. Uh, a much stronger dollar as a consequence of the US being, I'd say, a bit isolated from the energy crisis seen in, in, in Europe, right? But if we assume that the Federal Reserve will actually pause in, say, three, four months from now, where do you think the dollar will go, Ben? So to me, this is probably the most um, convex, interesting, the next big secular move in markets um, will, I think, be a, a pretty dramatic turn in the US dollar. 
um, as we get to, you know, uh, sometime. Like, essentially, I think the dollar here is absolutely peaking. And as we get towards the end of this year into next year, I think the most interesting um, trade across any asset class to focus on will be the turn of the dollar. And why is that? I think you also have to go back to the last cycle where, um, you know, the dramatic, um, because of what's been called, and not just in the post-COVID environment, but really in the post-crisis environment, you know, the era of US exceptionalism, um, where, you know, especially the very large savings countries, Switzerland, Europe, and Japan, um, years, decades of current account surpluses, uh, had accumulated to local savings. Uh, and in the area of, of lowflation, where these were the three economies who suffered, if you want to call it suffer, the most or the most exposed to lowflation or deflation, their extraordinary policy was specifically designed to weaken the currency via movement of the capital account. And so all three of those countries or blocks or regions um, went to negative rates. And if you go back to negative rate policy back to originally when Draghi and, and co uh, designed it, it was specifically done to create a cycle of currency weakness via exporting, you know, these blocks, very large savings blocks via the capital account. That was a mechanism. Uh, and that currency weakness would both end up creating an inflation impetus uh, as well as a growth impetus, given that these blocks tend to be, but you know, as you can tell by their current account surpluses, are very export-orientated economies. Um, and so what we saw over that decade was a historic, we've never seen in history before, shift of not only the income, so not recycling their surpluses, but actually at the aggregate level, going back and taking their whole stock of savings that they'd earned over previous decades, and essentially the aggregate level that was all turned into dollars, right? And so if you look at the US's net international investment position, it grew to about $20 trillion by the time COVID arrived. Um, so essentially, what does that mean in English is Foreigners hold about $20 trillion more of dollar-denominated assets than U.S. persons own of foreign assets, right? And, you know, bear in mind that before the crisis cycle, the U.S. net international investment position was always the other way, i.e. the U.S. tended to own more foreign assets um, than foreigners owned of U.S. assets. So the fact that foreigners were able to accumulate $20 trillion in excess, that's not the absolute number. The absolute number is far greater than that. <laughs> Twenty trillion is the excess of what those country uh, of what foreigners own of U.S. assets compared to um, what the U.S. Uh, own of foreign assets. And so we're starting from a position of absolute extremity and absolute exposure, where the whole world is essentially, especially the savings countries. Couldn't be long any more dollars um, if they tried. They've already turned their savings into dollars, right? Um, and now a lot of the reasons why they did that are turning. Number one is we're going to a positive um, term structure of interest rates, which should stay here given the change inflation regime. And so those portion of those assets that move to escape negative rates, either because mandate they weren't allowed to invest in negative rate or because they didn't want to, right? Um, so some of those basic fixed income flows, it's not natural to have such a large 
portion of your national wealth exposed to currency movement, right? Um, and so a lot of that basic uh, fixed income savings will move back as the penalty rate gets extinguished. Um, and then also, which we'll get into, I think, you know, some of the other money that moved because of extreme equity market outperformance, et cetera, et cetera, um, will clearly, I, I strongly believe that both that, um, that equity market outperformance will clearly turn. Some of it was sectoral, right? We had very, very, very low rates. U.S. tech is the longest duration equity, right? You know, it depends which academic you look at, but whether it's 40 or 60 year duration, mm. every 1% lower in the long bond is an extreme amount of equity outperformance. And that whole time was characterized by, you know, the long bond going into the 07 crisis was at 7% and we went down to zero during COVID, right? So that is a vast amount of mathematical equity appreciation. Um, and clearly we're going to a different term structure rate environment, uh, a different funding environment. And so I, I believe that equity market outperformance is, you know, is and will be done. And then lastly, as you get fixed income flows going back and you get some element of equity uh, flow going back, by definition, especially once we get through this energy crisis and the current account dynamic research itself, um, clearly we will be in a, um, you know, an environment where the dollar will be depreciating, foreign currencies will be appreciating. And that in itself is a change of trend, which will beget further flows, um, you know, as, as when people are no longer earning money to be in a foreign currency, they go back to their own bias, as we always see in cycles. So Ben, your macro thesis seems pretty clear and very well explained. Now to make up a macro trade for the macro trading floor, we understand you don't like US assets and especially you don't like the US dollar right here. But to make a trade, we need an FX trade, at least we need two pairs at least. So you don't like the US dollar, which means you've got to like something against it. What is that? Sure. Um, so, so, so I, I think there are a variety of currencies we can look at, um, you know, and you can kind of pick your poison depending on, on what your macro view is and, and maybe the best is a basket of all. But clearly the obvious one, um, you know, especially as we get to a peak in the rate cycle and we move away from is the Fed too hawkish to uh, is the Fed perhaps uh, stopping too early um, you know, because some of these other factors, clearly buying real assets, things like precious metals, et cetera, um, I think will reassert themselves. And, and I, I think they actually received, and because the beginning of the Ukraine war also marked the beginning of the hiking cycle, we haven't really seen this theme assert itself, but I think if we go into 2023, long gold is going to be, um, uh, a trade that you should absolutely focus on because what happened at the beginning of the Ukraine war, uh, I think will fundamentally change our monetary system where we've been since Bretton Woods, we've gone off a gold standard into, um, uh, into a, uh, in, into a, a global reserve standard where instead of owning gold, you own treasuries, right? Maybe some bonds, maybe some Swiss francs, but essentially treasuries. And what happened at the beginning of the Ukraine war and politics aside, whether it was warranted or not warranted, you know, who cares, you know, when the US and its allies, by the way, including Switzerland, um, confiscated the Russian reserves, um, you know, the Swiss didn't even do that to Hitler, right? So people had generally felt very safe. 
Uh, and the fact that the US, the Europeans, the Swiss uh, confiscated Russia's reserves, warranted or not warranted, it, when you look at who holds reserve currencies and who holds savings countries, they're opposite sides of the geopolitical block, right? So the Western orientated countries, US, Europe, UK, Australia, Canada, other quote unquote reserve currencies. And the people who have savings are China, Russia, the Middle East, people who are level and see different political views in those Western countries. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what I think is important to realize here is if I'm China holding $5 trillion in treasury, my holding my national wealth in something where someone with a different political view can confiscate them is not, is not very clever, right? And so what I think we will, we will see, and if you look at the increase in China gold imports already, uh, over the last six months is already up something like 80 plus percent year on year. Um, and that's taking the whole year, whereas this only really started in April. Um, you know, but I, I think that all the savings countries, so, you know, all the Middle East, China, Russia, Getcha, will have a higher portion of their reserves in gold. And on what's a relatively small asset class, they'll have an outsized weighting. And when you get the headwind of the very turn, hawkish turn central banks away, I think that creates blue sky. And I think we can see much, 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 much higher gold prices. So that's one. Uh, secondly, I think higher commodity prices in general, real asset regime is here to stay. Um, you know, Andreas and I, when uh, he was at his former employee, used to speak about uh, the Norwegian krona quite a lot. But uh, I think clearly, um, you know, the Noki stands out in an environment where the world is short of oil right now, short of energy. Um, plus, Norway is probably the only, because of their historic savings, probably the only currency that didn't overextend itself in COVID rather than printing lots of currency. It just used its historic savings uh, and maintained, let's say, the hardness of their currency. Um, and so I think the Norwegian kroner is, 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 is cheap. Uh, have a proper central bank, a proper fiscal, um, you know, government, and, you know, they have what the world is short. Um, you know, I think, you know, likewise, uh, my, you know, uh, other commodity currencies, Australia, Canada, uh, you know, and I think there'll be a time to also finally go back into very under-earned emerging currencies, right? So places like Brazil are extremely cheap when we get through the election, uh, which is now only two months away. Uh, and some of that risk premium goes away. Uh, you've got very high rates of yield. You've got very positive terms of trade. Uh, you know, they'll be positive. And then lastly, you've got, you know, what we started to be in the beginning. Do you get that turn um, in money flowing back from what might be considered or have long been considered very poor uh, or a very unattractive currency, places like the euro? Um, you know, if you get any clue that you know um any let up in in some of the energy crisis um you know and you know places like the places like the euro um which again as some of that money flows back from dollars could be extremely powerful once we get a positive term structure of interest rates um and so you know be careful about looking too much at a currency like the euro in terms of its spot interest rate versus us or whatnot it's about the rate of change and i think the non-linearity of of the zero bound um and so i think as we get the winter season out of the way and some of that fear about um lack of production uh you know based around lack of gas flows 
um, you know, you could get a very, very powerful rally, even in uh, what are perceived unattractive currencies like the euro. So a very clear trade here, being short dollar versus both precious metals, but also commodity currencies. We always allow our guests, Ben, a, um, an early exit option. So what could go wrong with this view? What could make the dollar even stronger than what we've seen over the past quarters? Yeah, I think there's very little risk uh, on, on, on the dollar turn on any relevant horizon. But as always, the kind of the million dollar question is, is timing. Um, and, and so I think it's more a matter about where you set your trade. Uh, and as always, the last leg of a trade can often be the most aggressive, right? So, um, so to me, I don't think the question is, will the dollar turn, but more when and at what level? And so I think the question is like, sure, can we get an environment in Q4 where, um, you know, US data stays somewhat elevated, the Fed follow through on the hawkish side, Russia turns off the gas taps, uh, the, you know, you end up getting a, um, you know, a really terrible situation in Europe where uh, you have to turn off flows to manufacturing, exacerbating um you know a negative uh, a negative trade shock is they have to you know import more and more and more expensive energy uh and are unable to export their traditional you know manufacturing base and you have an aggressive spike down to you know 90 cents in the euro and um you know and that panic uh for dollars you know essentially yeah, rises a whole dollar absolutely that's that's a possibility. So I think the question here is not will the dollar turn, but when and at what price and picking your spots here over the next three, four, five months, um, you know, is going to be the hard part of the trade. Um, so I'm, I'm quite confident about where we'll end up, but, you know, I'm not short dollars yet. Um, you know, the question is, is that turn going to come, you know, sooner or later? Is it September, October, November, December? Is at current levels or, you know, in Euro terms, 95 or 90. I think they're, they're the questions, um, you know, and, and I think the risks are pretty clear around that. Uh, and the question is, can you be in a situation to not have used your powder too early and get caught in a, in a final spike would, would, would be the risk that I would perceive as, as the largest risk around the thesis. Ben, I am delighted, and I think I can speak on behalf of Andreas as well, to have had you on the show. Uh, this has been really a very good interview. Um, in case people want to try and uh, find out more about you, which we have done in the past, what's up about Ben Meltman coming forward? Where can they find that? I think people can follow my track because I've done plenty of these interviews in the past. <laughs> right at the outset of COVID, we, we, we did a great interview with Eric Schatzko at Bloomberg. And, you know, I will, um, I will be happy to, um, you know, uh, I would be happy to continue uh, updating my views, et cetera. Um, you know, and then for the, you know, institutional community, um, you know, uh, either they, they generally, well, if you know me already, feel free to get in touch. Uh, and if not, maybe, um, you know, some of the, uh, some of your senior contacts at, at the bank's prime brokerage is always know where to find mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, for joining, Ben. And thank you um, also for the praise for Norway. Even though I'm a Dane, I still consider Norway a part of the Danish kingdom or at least a part of the Danish family. So um, thank you for the praise. <laughs> and, and I'm going uh, to say, you. obviously, I'm, I'm always on Bloomberg under my, under my name. So anyone can reach out to me on Bloomberg. 
Ben, thanks again Perfect. for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. So guys, we've had the pleasure of having Ben Melkman on the show, somebody who has run a lot of money for a lot of hedge funds and uh, basically is running his own money right now at Light Sky Macro. Ben, trade idea and macro construction, macro idea construction behind is very, very clear. I think as a story is basically short the dollar against a basket of stuff. He likes real assets. So gold is a very clear example. There is, there's a bunch of ETFs to, to just be long gold and short the dollar. FAU, P-H-A-U, is a, is a pretty common one. There are many others. But Andreas, he also, I think, is, is willing to be short the dollar against other currencies, especially if they have certain characteristics, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he obviously mentioned uh, my neighborhood as a potential long, so Norway. Uh, I, by the way, like that idea, but it's not that easily tradable uh, from an ETF perspective. So the most natural way of reflecting his view in, in foreign exchange space is via the UDN or um, via the LEUR, that's the European traded long euro versus the US dollar from Wisdom Tree. Um, so, I mean, th those are uh, ETFs that uh, you could utilize. Um, uh, but uh, by the way, as we mentioned initially, this episode is, is sponsored by Saxo Bank. And um, on the Saxo Bank platform, you basically find um, unparalleled market coverage across FX. Um, so they provide free currency sub-accounts. Um, and they also provide, I'd say, very competitive interest rates on uh, deposits in local currencies. So that's essentially the way I usually trade FX. I basically just have sub-deposits in various currencies. And then I just spot exchange and allow the dollars, for example, to just stay at that deposit and yield the ongoing uh, overnight deposit rate, right? So that's also one way of doing it. You don't need an ETF. You could also just um, have various sub-accounts uh, and deposits in, in various currencies and just yield the uh, spread from, from, from earning the yield and on, on the deposit. Yeah, it's a pretty convenient way, Andreas, to do that. In case people want to find more, they can uh, use the link go to dot saxo slash macro FX. It's a pretty decent platform to implement uh, these kind of trades. But back to the um, to the point, Andreas, which is short the dollar, right? And it's a very interesting timing because the dollar is going parabolic against anything. So if you take precious metals, watches, I even posted on Twitter uh, the other day, even if you take watches, as long as they're priced in a fiat currency, which is relatively safe, even considered like the Swiss franc or the dollar, um, the dollar is going up against watches as well. And now Ben Melkman is telling us that he wants to be short the dollar. Now, can you recap a little bit the macro story behind and let's discuss at least a couple of points. Uh, at least he didn't say that he wanted to be short dollar versus Rolex. But, <laughs> but <laughs> almost, anyhow, almost. Uh, almost, yeah. But um, I think his most interesting point in relation to the US dollar uh, is the story on the uh, usual capital saving countries such as Switzerland, for example, but also actually Euro, the Eurozone as a whole, maybe mainly Germany, um, those countries with huge um, trade surpluses usually. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, we've had a change of scenery on, on these trade surpluses um, and uh, also in terms of current account building. Uh, so that could also be a game changer for the sort of natural flow into dollar assets that we've seen from the capital buildup in, in countries like that. Um, the counter argument to that is obviously that when you have a trade deficit, um, 
you have a different flow than when you have a trade surplus. So I think it's it's pretty clear that there is a correlation between the lack of a trade surplus in, in Europe right now and the uh, weakening euro exchange rate. But from a savings perspective, I get his point that over the past decade, basically, we've seen a running flow into dollar assets. It's very clear from the um, net international investment position of the US that, I mean, Foreigners are just buying into U.S. stuff with those uh, uh, with those um, the money saved. Um, so if we get a change of that saving trend, it is a game changer. Um, but I think I find it very tricky to time that story. But I think on a yeah. structural level, it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and Andreas Ben uh, has run money and still does, so he's very open to the idea that timing this very structural macro cross currents is complicated, really complicated. But what I like a lot is to make the example of South Korea. So South Korea business model has basically been over the last 20 years pretty successful and it's based on good manufactured stuff produced with pretty cheap energy, which was important and then sold over to uh, China, Europe, wherever they need to sell their, their, their chips and other good stuff they produce in Korea, right? Taiwan, you can make a similar story for semiconductor chips. Now, these countries, like others, have been accumulating, as you say, um, savings, effectively, domestic savings, local savings. Some of those have been pretty, a decent portion of those have been turned into dollars. Now, if you assume that this um, macro uh, backdrop will change, then the guys accumulating dollar savings will not be uh, the same countries, the same strong capital uh, flow countries that you're discussing. But there will be other countries, and they might be a bit less friendly in allocating their uh, their surpluses back to dollars. Right? We have seen already China uh, supposedly lower their their treasury positions and increasing their gold position. Again, those are very structural, difficult to time across currents. But it's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I mean, at the point where the West decided to sanction the FX reserves from the Russian central bank, at least I would expect that the People's Bank of China held a meeting after that because, I mean, <laughs> if, if I were them, I would basically shit my pants because yeah. they have a truckload of dollars uh, positioned in U.S. treasuries, etc. And, I mean, if shit hits the fan, of course, you could imagine a scenario where the West will, will tr would try and seize parts of those uh, exchange reserves as well, right? Um so I think from a structural perspective, it matters. It's not easy for China to just from one day to the other uh, to just move that FX reserve into something else. Of course, they will not. But I mean, on a structural basis, they're, they're not, likely not going to load up on dollars if they can avoid it. Um, yeah. So it makes a whole lot of sense that this is also from a geopolitical perspective, a game changer for the dollar. Um, but I mean, the momentum in, in the strong do stronger dollar trade is just immense right now. Uh, and it's basically catching a falling knife if you want to try and buy something against it. So yeah. good luck. I mean, I, I, I tried it once uh, a few weeks back. I got annihilated on that trade and uh, I got stopped out in a matter of days, more or less. So. Uh, I uh, honestly, as, as my shirt says, by the way, no, for fuck's sake, the dollar isn't going to zero. Ben <laughs> didn't say it's going to zero, but no, in, no, general, no. in general, in this macro cycle where you have slowing um, global demand and you have central banks that are completely committed in pushing real yields high across the curve, something we have discussed, Andres, and maybe it's, it's worth having a chat about that. It's really complicated for uh, the dollar to actually uh, lose 
relative to other fiat currencies. And also, yeah. if you ask me relative to hard assets, as you increase the denominator, the value of the denominator of these hard assets, so holding dollars becomes marginally more profitable as an activity. It's also very difficult for gold or other hard assets to perform. So let, let me pitch an idea in FX space. Um, I've recently added a position in Mexican peso. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason being that it's one of the countries that will certainly gain from this deglobalization since it will likely be one of the new manufacturing hubs for the US if they start to move manufacturing back to, to sort of shores nearer to, to the US uh, territory. That's one thing. Second thing is that uh, real yields in, in Mexico look relatively attractive in comparison to other currencies. Uh, and uh, I mean, thirdly, if you look at positioning, it's one of the most hated EM currencies out there, and I don't really get why, given this backdrop. Um, so, if you if you're not willing to trade it directly versus the US dollar, you could trade it versus another EM currency, uh, for example, the South African rand. So, I'm basically long since I'm placed in Europe. I'm long the Mexican peso versus Europe. We couldn't resist to throw in some uh, tricky emerging market stuff, Andreas. We had talked for <laughs> too long about Europe and the US, but hey, it's the macro trading floor, so we can chat about basically everything. Now, I think we have kept our audience engaged. They have a very clear macro story with a long-term, medium to long-term trade out of it, just buy anything that's denominated in dollars, basically, but possibly not risk assets. I don't think Ben was very happy to lift risk assets, but no. rather other currencies or gold, which was one, mm. one of his calls for 2023, especially. And I would say um, that's all for today, Andreas. Yeah, thank you so much for listening to the Macro Trading Flow again. Uh, we are obviously out every Sunday. And if you want to go check out Saxo Bank's platform, you can find the link just below here in the description. Uh, so uh, go have a look and uh, we'll see you next Sunday. My name is Andreas Steno. And this is Alf. See you guys. Mm -hmm.